Have your Bible, if you would, and turn to Malachi chapter 2. Malachi chapter 2. If you will bear with me today, I'm battling a cold, so if my voice is a little raspy or I uh, sit down for a minute, I'm just uh, trying to save my energy for all three of these sermons today, all right? We're looking at Malachi chapter 2, verses 17 through chapter 3 and verse number 6. How many of you are ready today to hear a word from the Lord? Are you, is your heart open? Is your mind open? Are your ears open? Because God is going to speak to us in the next few moments. So I want to ask you to pray with me. I'm going to read the text as I preach through it. But have your Bible open in your lap and be ready to see, receive the word of the Lord. Here at our church, we believe that the Bible is the inspired, infallible, and inerrant word of God. There are no mistakes in it. It's not out of date. It is fresh. It's relevant. And even though the passage we're going to look at today was written 2,400 years ago, it's so fresh and it's so relevant for today. God is going to speak a word to us. The question is whether or not we're going to receive his word. God, in this series, True Hearts in Troubled Times, I'm reminded of your demands and your expectations upon our life. Your demands and your expectations that we are to love you with all our heart, with all our soul, and all of our mind. That we're to follow you. We're to seek you. We're to love you. We're to obey you. We're to fill our hearts, fill our minds with the Holy Scriptures. We're to know what you have spoken and what you have said, your directives, your boundaries, your guidelines. And then we're to follow them and obey them. Through Jesus Christ, we have a new covenant. And that covenantal relationship brings us into fellowship with you, fellowship with our Lord and Savior. And Jesus once again repeated what you had recorded in Deuteronomy 6 and Matthew 22 when he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. God, we want to love you, we want to serve you, and we want to obey you. But we find ourselves today living in a difficult times, living in a difficult world where there's a lot of sin, there's a lot of brokenness, there's a lot of confusion, there's a lot of talk, there's a lot of chatter, there's a lot of opinions, there's a lot of division. And so today, God, we just want to hear a clear, clean word from you. Would you speak to us clearly? Make it clear, Lord, and give us true hearts for you in these troubled times. And I pray this in Jesus' name, God's people said, amen. amen. Be seated if you would. Our subject matter today is true hearts in judgment. True hearts in judgment. Judgment is actually the theme of the verses that we're going to study in just a few minutes. If you're a guest today, we're in the book of Malachi and we're studying through what we call the seven disputations, the seven disputes that God has with his people. Dispute number one, God says to his people, I have loved you. And his kids answer back, well, how have you loved me? 
And God reminds them that he has chosen them, that they are his chosen people. At the end of chapter 1, God says, you have despised my name. And his kids argue back with him. How have we despised your name? And God says, I'll tell you how. You've been offering polluted sacrifice on the altar. You've come to the table of the Lord and you've, you've placed broken and blemished sacrifices on the altar knowing full well that I told you I only want your best. Last week we looked into chapter 2. As God said, you have profaned my covenant. And you're coming to the altar. You profane the covenant that I have made with you. You're profaning the covenant that you have with one another. You're profaning the covenant that you made in marriage to the wife of your youth. Yet you're running to the altar and you're laying over the altar and you're crying out and you're offering sacrifice before me and I want none of it. It's disgusting to me. Why? Because you're going through the motion. And your heart is truly not set on me. So we move into verse number 17 today. Another dispute or another, another question, if you will, that God's people offer up to him. Now, I want to ask you this question. If you, if you could ask God some questions today, what would those questions be? Let's just say for sake of conversation that you were given five questions. You could ask God five things. What would you ask him? Anybody have something come to your mind real quick? You just something popped in? I, mean, I would ask him this. I would ask him, why did this happen? Or I would ask him, what's going to happen in this opportunity or this, uh, this moment? There, there's not a one of us that have not said, when I get the opportunity, I'm going to ask God why, blah, blah, blah. Can I get a witness this morning? You said, I'm going to ask him why that had to happen. Now, now, here's what I believe. I believe there's nothing wrong with asking God questions. Jesus himself on the, on the cross said, God, why? Why have you forsaken me? I think the problem comes in when we ask God the question, questions that we have, and we're not doing it in reverence and humility. How many of you know you can ask God a question and the question you're asking him is done in the wrong attitude and the wrong spirit? When you ask the question, you're really ticked, you're really mad, and you want some answers for God why he is not responding in a fair or just manner. How many of you have ever felt like God needed to intervene in a certain situation? Or God should have not allowed this to happen? God should have stepped in and stopped this. And so we ask God those questions. And, and really, sometimes when we ask God questions, what we're really doing is we're hurling accusations at him because we're angry and we don't understand what he's doing or why he allows something to happen. Now, I give you that background because that's exactly what's going on in Malachi chapter 2 and verse 17. Look in the scripture. The first thing I want you to see in the text today is this. The weariness of the Lord is addressed. God is weary. Look in your Bible. Malachi says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? Here's this dispute again. God is weary with you, but you're throwing up your hands saying, well, how have we wearied him? The answer is by saying, 
Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Now, the truth is we can all relate to this verse, okay? Because in essence, what the people are doing is they're constantly having this conversation about the behavior of other people. And this is the conclusion that's being drawn. Because God is not speaking, because God is not acting, because God is not pouring out his wrath or his judgment, then that must mean that what at one time was considered evil is now good. Because God is a God of justice, but we see no justice around us. Someone once said, when all is said and done, there'll be more said than done. Right? So, so what is God weary with? God is weary with talking. God's people are putting on full display in this verse what it looks like to speak with poor judgment, to speak when we should be silent. Man, I've learned the lesson that sometimes, I've learned it the hard way as a matter of fact, that sometimes the best thing we can do is just be silent. The best thing we can do is not have anything to say. I'm going to tell you, it was a great day in my life when I fully realized that I don't have to have all the answers. Sometimes in conversations as a pastor, you want to say something. You feel like you need to say something. But God says, no, in this moment, you just need to be quiet. When things happen, what do we do? It's natural for us, right? We talk about stuff, <laughs> We talk about stuff. Anybody in the room ever find yourself, and don't ask my wife about me. Anybody in the room ever find yourself, you just talk stuff into the ground? You just talk about it, and you talk about it, and you talk about it? Because that's kind of what we do in life, right? I mean, I mean we, can we all agree today that sometimes life is difficult to process? And I'm a verbal kind of person, and so when I'm processing things and processing life, I like to talk about it, and sometimes we can talk about it, and we can run it into the ground. And we talk about why things happen the way they do. And it's interesting, in verse 17, God says, I'm so tired of hearing y'all talk about this. You're talking too much. I'm weary. And we know that God is not exhausted here. It's not like God needs to take a nap, okay? Because he's tired, it's hyperbole where, where Malachi is saying to them, God is actually saying in this quotation that, that, that I'm exhausted, I'm frustrated with my kids. I know no mom and dad got frustrated with their kids this week. No, one, no mom or dad had a thought this week that I wished you would just be quiet for a minute. But that's exactly what God is saying in this verse. Isn't it fascinating? God says, I'm weary with your words. What are the words that they're speaking? Look on the screen. They're saying this. Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Now, am I speaking to a room this morning of people that would say, agree with me, that when we speak for the Lord, we better be careful to represent him properly. When we speak on his behalf, <laughs> it needs to be accurate. It needs to be clear. And we need to represent him in the right way. 
What the people did not have the right to do was to change God's moral law. What God had spoken, he had clearly spoken. Uh, Look down to verse number six of chapter three, and we'll get to it in just a minute. But I, I need to jump to this in light of this point. The Lord says, I do not change. Not only has God not changed on what he has spoken, but man does not have the right to change for what God has spoken. Man does not have the right to say that something that is clearly evil or sin or goes against the word of God, man does not have the right to say, well, that's okay now. Okay. Now, why were they saying that? They weren't just saying that flippantly. They were saying that in a response to what they saw around them. Because God was not dealing with the wicked and dealing with the evil, they were saying, I guess God has changed their mind and he is delighting in their behavior. He's delighting in what they do and he's not judging them or he's not dealing with them. Now, in covenant relationship with God, they were expecting the blessings, right? How many of you like the blessings of God? Come on now. The promises of God. When you read Deuteronomy, the book of the law, chapter 28 and 29, it talks about the blessings and the cursings. The people had the blessings mentality. God is available. He's always there. You know, it it doesn't matter where my heart is. It doesn't matter what I'm doing. It doesn't matter if I'm being obedient or not being obedient. God is always there. We love, what is it, Jeremiah 29, 11, the Lord has plans for me, plans to prosper me and for well-being. We love, it's a good verse. It's a great verse, but I'm trying to make a point here. We love verses like that, but we forget that with that comes obedience. With that comes our hearts being turned toward God. Remember, God is not a, a genie that's just always available. He's not the, a vending machine in the sky. That, that when we have a covenant relationship with God, that, that he expects us to obey him and to follow him. But here's what we do. We fall into this mentality. God's people fell into it in verse number 17. God, you're going to bless me, but you're going to curse them. God, bad things need to happen to them, not to us. God, because we're in covenant relationship, I'm going to go over here and do what I want to do, behave the way I want to behave, but I always want you to bless me and I want everything to run smoothly and perfectly. I want to have all that I need because you're going to bless me and I want you to do something to them (laughs) because they're bad. And when you're in covenant relationship with God and you find yourself in hard times, you begin to question God as to why you're going through what you're going through. Now, what's the the setting here? What's the setting in the book of Malachi? The setting is famine, oppression, high taxation, a lot of widows, a lot of homelessness, a lot of orphans. God's people are being oppressed by the Persians. They're being mistreated. How many of you know that when you're going through hard times, it can be difficult to watch the wicked prosper? I mean, your car, your 20-year-old car is broken down in the driveway when your neighbor who has no heart for God or the things of God pulls up in a new car. 
How many of you know it's hard to celebrate for them, right? Don't look at me like that, you bunch of Pharisees. You're going, God, you know what? We're, we're trying to serve you. We're trying to live for you. We're trying to obey you. And our motor blows up, and they've got a brand new car. They trade it just because the tires are getting a little worn. God, how is it that the wicked can prosper? Where are you at in all this? God, we want you to bless us, but make you hurt for them. God's people had fell into this trap. They were thinking that the wicked are doing evil and they're getting away with it. God has to send them a message. And here's the message. The message is, yes, I'm going to deal with wicked. I'm going to deal with the evil. I'm always going to show justice in all matters. But first things first, I'm in covenant relationship with you and I want to talk to you first. <laughs> about your heart and about your behavior. Remember this. Evil acts are never good and they are never overlooked by God. God does not miss out on things that happen. Are you tracking with me? He's omnipresent. He's omniscient. He's everywhere. He knows all things. He knows everything about your life. He knows everything about your heart. You know what I find out when it comes to me and my sin and my wrongdoing? You know what I want? I want his mercy. But sometimes we look at the wicked and we say, God, get them. Get them. They deserve it. You know what we do? We, we wouldn't admit this at church, but down deep in our hearts, we think, I can't wait for the day when God rains down judgment like Sodom and Gomorrah on all these wicked people. And I want you to know that's the wrong attitude. It's a wrong heart. When what we really ought to have is a heart of gratitude and thankfulness that we are in covenant relationship with him. And our attitude should not be, God, I guess you're calling evil good now. I guess you delight in these people. No, because we know the rest of the story. Now, please hear me. God's people in Malachi chapter 2, verse 17, they already knew a lot. They were given the law. They were given instructions. They were given commands. But you know what they did? They forgot what to do with the knowledge they had. Does that not happen to us many times? We forget to act on what we know. And God says to them, I'm tired of listening to you talk about this. This was their attitude toward God. God, we're back home. God, we've rebuilt the temple. God, we're sacrificing and we're worshiping you like you told us to. God, where are all the blessings? Why are the righteous suffering while the wicked are prospering? Is that not exactly what Job and his friends wrestle with in the book of Job? Job was a righteous man, but yet he had the worst day anybody could ever have. <laughs> he lost everything he owned, including his family. And it's natural for us to ask the question, why did the righteous suffer? Asaph Ask the same question in Psalm 73. Jeremiah, ask it in Jeremiah chapter 12. Habakkuk, in his book, 
ask the same question. And I'm telling you, all of us at points in our life are going to wrestle with this. God, why? Why don't you speak? God, why don't you intervene? God, why don't you stop this? But how many of you feel like at times that God is just silent? He's just silent. What happens after that last period at the end of the book of Malachi? Book is over. We'll be there in a few weeks. Then what? You may know what happens. For 400 years, God does not speak. God does not send a prophet. I was reading a piece this week about a man named Robert Anderson that that wrote about this subject, the silence of God. Why is God silent? Why is God not speaking? It's an interesting piece because he, he gets into the fact that you and I, as his covenantal people, we feel like that we need to speak into suffering, right? We feel like we need to speak into world events. We need to speak into tragedy. Because I'm going to tell you, I was asked more than once, why did God allow those planes to fly in the World Trade Center? And people want to know, what kind of God would allow that to happen? How many of you found yourself in that moment and you're going, man, what do I say right now? Right? Can we get honest today? Sometimes it's stressful, right? And we want, we want God, Anderson said, what we really want is we want God to speak into the mess. We want God to say something. But why does he remain silent? We know that he's spoken to us through his word. But we're now rapidly approaching 2,000 years where God has not spoken audibly. And Anderson draws a conclusion that I think is fascinating. He says, that God has already spoken everything that he possibly can graciously. Let me say that again. God has already spoken everything that he possibly can graciously. And the only words that are left to be spoken are the final words of judgment. God is silent now because when he speaks again, judgment will come. What does the Bible say? I know this is not popular preaching today, but it's, it's in the Bible, right? The Bible says that God's going to say, not thank you for your contributions to the kingdom. God's going to say, you know what? You were speaking on my behalf. You even called yourself a preacher and a pastor. And I want you to know, I've got something to say to you now. Depart from me, I never knew you. Those are some strong words, aren't they? So let's, let's bring this back around. God is weary with his children because his children are frustrated. And they're saying, look at all this evil. Evil's taking the world over. And look at all these, these evil leaders and rulers and these thieves and all this stuff that's going on today in this world. And God, they're doing it and they're getting away with it. And you're not doing anything about it. And so we're frustrated with you. I guess you're happy with sin now. 
And Anderson says, no, 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 stop just a minute. God has spoken everything he can graciously. The next time he speaks, it's going to be wrath and judgment. God is weary. He's weary with the words of his people. Let's move quickly into chapter 3. The next part is we see the way of the Lord is prepared. I love verse number 1. Look at it with me. It says, Behold, I send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now, anybody remember the first service today batted zero, point zero zero zero. Anybody remember what Malachi's name means? Anybody? Thank you. We had two people that were listening. In chapter 3 and verse number 1, we see messenger number 2. I'm going to send a messenger, and he's going to prepare the way before me. And we see messenger number 3. He is the messenger of the covenant who will suddenly come to the temple. Now, the Jewish people love the book of Isaiah, particularly the first 40 chapters, 41 to 66 I, need, I don't need to get into all that today, but they're, they're very heavily on the first 40 chapters of the book of Isaiah. In chapter 40 and verse number 3, Isaiah in the 700s declares a word for God's people that they really hung on to. It was important to them. It was something that they had put in the back of their mind and they had their eyes open and they were looking for. Look at Isaiah chapter 40 and verse number 3. It says, a voice cries... In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken." 700s. Isaiah says there's going to be a voice coming out of the wilderness that is going to prepare the way. Now, they didn't know who that voice was. Prophecy was going to unfold right in front of their eyes. And now we fast forward 300 years later and Malachi says it again. There's a messenger that's going to come and he's going to preach a message to prepare the way of the Lord. The question is, who is this messenger? Well, I believe Jesus clarifies it for us, makes it very clear who this messenger is. In Matthew chapter 11 and verse number 7. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. Not John, the brother of Jesus, or John the apostle, but John the Baptist. John the baptizer. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? Jesus asked them. He's kind of, you can kind of get a little bit of 
sarcasm here, if you will. Why did you, what did you walk out in the wilderness to find? Now, again, they're hanging on to this prophecy from the 400s and the 700s. When you went out in the wilderness looking for someone to fulfill this prophecy, what were you looking for? Were you looking for a reed to be blowing in the wind, to be shaken by the wind? What were you exactly looking for? Were you looking for a man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. Again, the mentality was our Messiah is going to come and he's going to have really nice robes and he's going to be in royalty and he's going to be a great military leader. That's who we're looking for. Verse 9, what then did you go out to see? A prophet? Now you went out to look for a king, but you went out and you saw a prophet. Yes, I tell you, John the Baptist is more than a prophet. Verse number 10, this is he of whom it is written. Here it is, a quotation by Jesus from Malachi chapter 3 and verse number 1. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Jesus called this man the greatest, did he not? He called John the Baptist the greatest, the greatest. Now, you got to think about it. If you were going to select someone to prepare the way for the Messiah, you would think someone who is educated would be chosen. <laughs> you would think someone who has a flashy, great presentation who can capture the attention of the people would be the one chosen to prepare the way. But how many of you know, thank God, that is not the way God operates? He chooses the weak things. He chooses the weak things. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He chooses the base things to confound the wise. The Bible says not many mighty and not many noble are called. Man, I don't know about y'all, but that blesses my socks off. That gives me hope, right? Not many smart people are called. Here comes John the Baptist out of the wilderness, and he looked like I don't know what. I promise you, if John the Baptist were alive today, he would not be on the schedule to speak at the Southern Baptist Convention next week. He was unorthodox in his mannerism. He was unorthodox in his appearance. But God said, this is the one. This one who has a diet of locusts and wild honey, he's going to come out of the wilderness and he's going to start preaching a message. 400 years. John the Baptist is actually the last of the prophets, if you will. And he comes out of the wilderness and he's preaching a message to prepare the way of the Lord. Now, the imagery of, of the king coming, Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5, it's very clear that the way is to be prepared. In other words, royalty is coming, so we need to make sure the roads are just right. I, I mean, we don't want any potholes. We don't, we don't want any rocks for the chariot to have to bounce over. We want everything, the way to be cleared and everything to be perfect when the Messiah comes. That's what the people were thinking in their minds. But when John the Baptist came to prepare the way, his preparation would have nothing to do with potholes and rocks in the road. His preparation would be preaching repentance and driving out unbelief that when God has said, I'm going to do this, he is now fulfilling his promises. And here's what's really sad today, gang. What's really sad is primarily the Jewish nation to this moment 
is still suffering from the sin of unbelief. They're rejecting the Messiah. John is preparing the way. How is he preparing the way? He's preaching a message of repentance. Repent of your sins. It's not a popular message being preached today by and large in our culture. I would add that John the Baptist is chosen for a specific time, for a specific job, but his job description is the same one that we have today. We need to tell people to repent and get ready because the king is coming. He came the first time. Born of a virgin in Bethlehem, 34 years, died on the cross, took our sin, our punishment, God's wrath in his body on the tree. He was buried in the tomb. He rose again the third day. He lived 40 days with his disciples. He ascended back into heaven. And at some point, he's seated at the right hand of God, but at some point, Jesus is coming again. And when he comes, the question is, will we be ready? John is saying the Messiah is coming. He's preaching repentance, and that was evidence through baptism. He came and he preached repentance and believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse number two. The third thing that we see in the text. We see not only that the way is prepared for the messenger of the covenant, which is Jesus Christ, but in verses two through four, we see the worship of the Lord is defined. Read it with me. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he, speaking of Jesus, is like a refiner's fire. He is like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi. He will refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. You remember the beginning of the series I told you that two things is going on number one in some ways they were not doing what God told them to do and in other ways they were going through the motions and they were not doing it with true hearts set on God when we think about true hearts we think about worship we think about our heart truly worshiping and being set on God when we think about worship I think about Psalm 24, where the psalmist wrote that the worship of God, when you come into the presence of God, you must come with clean hands and a pure heart. There must be a cleansing of your life. That's why there was, in the Old Testament, you read about uh, ritualistic baths and washings and cleansings and the washings of the hands. There had to be a cleansing to enter into the presence of the Lord. And when God gave Moses the law, there were really three primary ways that a cleansing could take place. Water, fire, and blood. Water, fire, and blood. Now, blood is not mentioned here in verses 2 through 4, but it's very clearly talking about a cleansing. How does this cleansing take place? Well, it comes through the fire. He gives the analogy of a refiner. A person who takes silver and metal and puts it in the fire and heats it up so that the impurities and the dross would come up to the top, 
the refiner would skim those impurities off and he would continue this process until he could see an image of himself in the silver. Man, there's a message in that, is there not? God continues to get the crud out of our life. Child of God, please hear me today. God does not tolerate and smile at sin. God is a refiner. He is a purger. He is a purifier. Malachi says he's like a launderer, a launderer who uses fuller soap. It's a, a picture of, of laundering dirty clothes. This fire, this cleansing is a burning away to get, the, to get the sin out of our life. Why? Because if we truly are going to be worshipers of God, we cannot do that adequately with sin in our hearts and our lives. Jesus came because we have a sin problem. Jesus came to drive out the sin in our life. I love what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, if any of you, my hearers, are seeking the Lord at this time, I want you to understand what it means. You are seeking a fire which will test you and consume much which has been dear to you. We are not to expect Christ to come and save us in our sins. He will come and save us from our sins. Therefore, if you are enabled by faith to take Christ as your Savior, remember that you take him as your purger and purifier, for it is from sin that he saves us. You know what, today, if you're in the fire, if God is heating things up in your life and purifying you and getting the dross off, you know what we really ought to do? We really ought to be thankful for that. We ought to be thankful for that. F.B. Meyer said, if you are now in the fire, dear soul, be of good cheer because it shows that you are silver. <laughs> you're silver. And you're capable of performing more acceptable service in God's holy temple. How many of you say, Pastor Tim, I want to be more effective in my service to the Lord. I, I want to be more effective. I was like four of you. How many of you want to be? How many of you be want to be more acceptable in the worship that you offer God? You want to be more acceptable. You want it to be pleasing. You know what God's doing in two through four? He's saying Jesus is coming. Remember, he flipped the tables over in the temple. He's coming. Yeah, he came to bring peace to the world. But what does the scripture say? I'm going to bring peace with a sword. I'm coming to judge. I'm coming to clean things up and clean things out. Why? Because I'm the refiner. Notice the imagery. I'm sitting. It says, he will sit over the silver and he will continually purge and cleanse until his people are clean before him. You know what God wants from us today? More so than our attendance, more so than showing up. He wants us to have a clean heart that's truly set on him. That's what he wants. He wants your heart. Now is the time, now is the time where the true worshipers will worship him in spirit and in truth. A part of living our lives in truth is being willing to say the truth about our own hearts and lives. That's what confession is. That's what repentance is. 
to say, God, I've sinned. And that's the beauty of the gospel is that God cleanses us and he cleans us so that, verse number four says, we can offer worship that is pleasing to him. Let me finish my message, the final thing in verses five and six. Malachi finishes up this section by writing how the witness of the Lord is predicted. Notice what it says in verse number five. Then I will draw near to you for what? For judgment. I will be, get this, I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. I want to tell you something. Verses 5 and (laughs) 6 is God speaking. And what does God say? God says there's coming a moment when I'm going to speak again. What does a witness do? A witness speaks, right? A witness declares. God says there's coming a moment. You you think I'm silent. You think I'm not ruling justly as I said I would. You've fallen into the trap of thinking that I've lost control of mankind, that I'm not going to deal with evil and things that are unjust and unfair. But you need to know there's coming a moment. Notice how he uses the word swift. It's going to happen fast. Church, hear me. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming on this earth. And and I think it would be so wrong for me to, to have a heart and an attitude as we see so much evil around us. It would be so wrong for me to have an attitude and a heart of, God, I can't wait till you rain down like you did in Sodom and Gomorrah. These people are getting on my nerves down here. I bet you can't wait to zap them with fire. No, it's not what the Bible says. You're misrepresenting God with that attitude. The Bible says the Lord is not slack earning his promise, but he is long-suffering. And he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God wants everyone to repent. God wants everyone to be saved. But the reality of it is, it's not going to happen that way. How do I know that? The Bible says it. Narrow is the way that leads to life everlasting, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. Isn't that what the Bible says? It's going to come swiftly. Verse number five is a, no doubt, a list of sins, prevalent sins, in the day that Malachi is writing. God says, I'm going to deal with the sorcerers. I'm going to deal with the witchcraft. I'm going to deal with all the adulterers. And that word there is a more of a word of sexual perversion. It's not just, it's not just sexual sins in the confines of marriage. It is sexual immorality and perversion. 
I'm going to deal with everyone who is bearing false witness, who is speaking falsely. I'm going to deal with those who many of you who are in covenant with me, you're employed by someone that is mistreating you. They're oppressing you. They're not paying you fairly. They're mistreating you. They're overworking you and underpaying you. I'm going to deal with them. I'm going to deal with those who have mistreated the widows. I'm going to deal with those who have ignored the orphans. God's going to, listen to me, God's going to deal with those who murder innocent babies. And you can talk about your opinions and whatever, and honestly, I guess God is weary in verse 17. I get weary. Murder is murder. The blood of innocent children are running in the streets of our cities and our country. And we sit back and we think, what do we, what do we do about it? What are we going to do about it? They're getting away with this. No, they're not. God is going to speak. He's going to speak swiftly. He's going to speak swiftly about those of us who thrust aside the sojourn. When you study that out, what was happening is there were, there were aliens, if you will. The word really is immigrants who were coming in and they were amongst God's people. And some of them were murdering them, stealing from them, abusing them, mistreating them. God says, I'm not going to smile upon that. I'm going to deal with that. I'm going to deal with that swiftly. I'm going to deal with the people who do not fear me. That's what God has declared. And listen to me, and I'm done. That's why verse number six is so important for us today. It's so important. I know people don't like this. I know it frustrates people. I know sometimes it, it even leads to endless debate and conversation about different matters and so forth. But verse number six cannot be any clearer. God says, I do not change. God doesn't change. God doesn't change. So hear me. God's silent today, and he's not up in heaven analyzing your worldview and my worldview to figure out how he wants to respond to what he sees going on. How many of you know God never has a day of discovery? He knows everything. What he has said, he has said. And it doesn't matter what Dr. Spock or Dr. Phil or anybody else says, God has spoken and he's made declaration in his word. This is the way it's supposed to be. I've designed it all. I've set it up. I've created man. I've created woman. These are the boundaries. This is the way you're supposed to live. You're supposed to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and you're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself. You're to treat each other with love and kindness and grace and mercy. And there's coming a day when I'm going to come back and I'm going to speak about the behavior of mankind on the world. And here's the only question you need to answer in your heart today. Here it is. If Jesus comes back today, are you ready? Are you ready for that moment? How do you get ready? You need to be refined. <laughs> you need to be purified. The gospel is all in Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. We are cleansed through not only the fire, but we're cleansed through the blood of Jesus Christ. 
that washes away our sin. You know what you need today? We all need. We need the blood of Christ applied to our lives. We need to be forgiven. We need to be washed in the blood of the Lamb so that when we come to that moment when Christ returns, we do not stand before him and try to make a case this is not going to happen. You don't stand before him and try to make a case of how good of a person you are in order to get into heaven. When we stand before God, the only thing that's going to matter for us is has the blood of Christ been applied to our lives? Have we been forgiven? And then Christian, if the blood has been applied to your life, I've got to ask you today, is there sin, is there crud in your life that you need to get out? When we talk about judging, people, some people like to say, judge not that you be not judged. I believe there's a difference between being judgmental and actually judging. I mean, you can simply just declare what God has said, and people call that being judgmental. That's not being judgmental. When Jesus makes that statement, judge not that you be not judged, what is he speaking to? He's speaking to your heart, and he's saying, look, the Pharisees, you're going around pointing out everybody else's stuff, and I want you to deal with your own stuff. <laughs> That's what he's saying. So God's saying to his church, let's deal with our own stuff today. 